Hello, everybody, and thanks for taking time today to listen in on our Hilco Global Smarter Perspectives podcast. I'm your host, Steve Katz, and we're really glad that you could tune in because we have a great discussion today. We're going to be talking about the very latest in the evolution of the green energy market and how participants in that market are capitalizing on new opportunities and addressing some pretty complex challenges as well. So with us for that conversation um, is Mark O'Neill. Mark, welcome back again to the podcast. Uh, We're glad to have you. We know you're a frequent podcast participant representing Hilco Valuation Services, so glad to have you on. Thank you for having me back on, Steve. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump into it because we got a lot to discuss. Uh, I know there's some pretty aggressive timetables set for the adoption of green energy in the U.S. Everybody's been reading about it. Most notably, we see it as it pertains to automotive, I think. Can you talk a little bit about that and uh, what it's going to take to get there? I think it's important, first of all, to understand the genesis of where we're going to today. And that would take us back to 2016 when the Obama administration became a signer to the Paris Agreement. And shortly thereafter, in June of 17, newly elected President Trump announced that the U.S. would exit the agreement, indicating that it would undermine the country's economy and place the U.S. at a permanent disadvantage. So in 2019, the Trump administration gave formal notice of withdrawal, and that withdrawal ultimately took place one day following the presidential election in November of 2016. The tables turned again when a newly elected President Biden signed an executive order in January of 21, rejoining the Paris Agreement. So you may wonder what exactly is the Paris Agreement. In summary, it's in addition to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, agreed to by all 195 member countries in December of 2015. And the main agreement's purpose is to limit the global temperature increase during this century to a maximum of two degrees Celsius above what were the pre-industrial levels. So that brings us to today and where we're at. So the present administration has announced plans to eliminate fossil fuels as a form of energy generation in the U.S. by 2035. And the goal has been set to have a target of 80% renewable energy generation by 2030 and 100% carbon-free electricity by 2035, which is aggressive by anyone's standards. So funding to achieve these goals was included in the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act signed into law on August 16th of 2022. And funding for various energy and allied initiatives in the act is estimated to total in excess of $390 billion. As you know, a reliable power generation in the U.S. is something many take for granted. However, various recent power interruptions and supply shortcomings may be foreshadowing the challenges that we're going to face transitioning away from fossil fuels. And adding additional power transmission facilities is not an easy or quickly accomplished task, and it goes beyond power generation to include the whole transmission structure that we have now. Uh, new EPA standards will require all coal-fired plants to use carbon capture and storage to reduce 90% of greenhouse gas emissions by 2035, and similarly, natural gas plants must adhere to the same standards by that year. All right. Well, that's good. I think a good top line in the background um, 
on the Paris Agreement is is definitely relevant there. Um, a lot of those mandates are clearly focused on improvements that have to take place across transportation, like I said as we started the podcast. So I do want to concentrate our discussion on those, starting first probably with automotive and commercial vehicles. So what can you tell us specifically about what's been going on um, with those two and what we can expect to see moving ahead? Well, we'll start with automotive, with with many of us are familiar with. Uh, much of green energy's focus has been in the evolution and eventual transition to EVs. And expenditures and investments in EVs and allied supply chains would include those associated with new entrants, which we have numerous of, They'd include people like Rivian, Fisker, Lucid, Lordstown Motors, which unfortunately has filed for bankruptcy already. Collectively, though, they've chewed up over $100 billion. And then investments in battery plants, of which there are 10 currently under construction, amount to over $40 billion. And just last week, the federal government announced that they were going to give another $12 billion to automakers to help expedite the trans, uh, what I call the transition to EVs and also uh, make up for potential job losses and or plant closures from internal combustion engine plants that we really aren't, won't be necessary going forward, or at least not as many of them will be as necessary going forward. Right, right. But uh, we still face a big hurdle, and that's consumer acceptance. And at this point in time, I think consumer acceptance could best be described as tepid. And there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, Pricing and range continue to be the forefront of studies and consumer attitudes toward these vehicles. And in order to incentivize buyers and improve sales, uh, Tesla, which holds 60% of the market share, uh, has had price cuts between 14 and 28%, depending on the model. And such moves have improved sales but reduced margins. Ford, similarly, has also recently announced price cuts on its F-150 Lightning pickup truck. They reduced the price there by 17%. And that's also due to increased dealer inventories, which is a problem for them also on the Mustang Mach-E EV. My local dealer, his lot is really full these days. Hmm. And then, of course, uh, Rivian, which most people have thought were really going somewhere, and we see some of them on the road. Their market capitalization has been very substantially reduced. It's a fraction now of what its high point had been. And then we look to everyday life if one were to own an EV, and charging stations and compatibility there continue to impact consumer demand. And in order to encourage more EV adoption, Tesla has now allowed Ford, GM, Volvo, and Mercedes to use their plug type and charging stations in hopes that it will become the industry standard. But that indicates Tesla leadership, maybe at the expense of others who are trying but haven't gotten there yet. And I think uh, regardless of consumer adoption, the auto industry is clearly under a mandate to sell more and more EVs as a result of increasing regulation, including much more stringent fuel economy standards, both in the United States and globally. And the current administration recently proposed rules that will require two-thirds of all new vehicles sold by 2032 to be EVs. And in fact, California is requiring all new cars sold by 2035 to be zero emission vehicles. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that Tesla move um, probably is somewhat, you know, it's a little bit self-serving, but it's also, you know, serves the overall growth of the industry because something has to happen infrastructure wise to kind of, you know, 
<laughs> sort of put the put the speed under the acceleration um, for this industry, I think. And maybe that's, you know, a piece of that. So all these mandates that you're, you're talking about, they're not just limited to passenger vehicles though, right? There's uh, expectations for commercial vehicles as well. So can you just maybe top line some of those quickly? Yes. And commercial vehicles are something we might not think about nearly as much, but it's just as important aspect of the EV transition. And these mandates are also impacting the medium to heavy duty truck market such to the extent that leading manufacturers such as Volvo, Mac, Freightliner, they've recently rolled out electric trucks alongside new market entrants such as Bollinger and Nikola. And similar to the California rule in regular vehicles, most all heavy and delivery trucks there must be zero emission by 2036. And that's the largest market in the country, particularly when we consider all the port traffic. So in late June of this year, the Biden administration announced a $1.7 billion investment to allow for the purchase of low and no emission buses and related transit projects across 46 states and territories. And this is a second bus grant package funded by the government on top of the previous $3.3 billion in transit buses and infrastructure that supports them. And further expenditures for expansion of this investment are expected to total $5 billion over the next several years. But getting back to the commercial truck market, there really are more hurdles to overcome with commercial trucks than there are with a vehicle that you or I might buy. The first is cost. Electric trucks cost three times as much as existing diesel trucks. And that's something that would have some impact on large fleet buyers, but it'd be particularly impactful to independent truckers that might only have one or two rigs. And then We have to think of the infrastructure for charging commercial trucks. And you look at the fact that their batteries are many times larger and require more charging than a car would. And we look at where trucks charge and we look at what would happen to truck stops having to re-equip themselves or truck terminals or ports and docks where trucks are frequently left idling for quite a while, burning up energy. And the testing and data on large fleets of electric trucks really isn't there yet. And something to think about, too, we could have a change in traffic patterns because many truckers like to operate at night now. We're in utilities and so forth are encouraging people to charge at night when there's less power use. So if more trucks were out during the day, it could cause a lot of traffic issues that people haven't thought. And then lastly, on the electric trucks, their batteries typically weigh 8,000 pounds apiece and large class eight over the road need two batteries. So we would have a reduction in payload too that people might not have thought through. Yeah, yeah. So lots of investment, lots of factors. As you said, uh, you know, costs on the commercial vehicles are much higher to make that sort of conversion. So let's shift over now to aviation and uh, maritime, as we said we were going to at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, How aggressive are the mandates there? And how are the players in those two segments responding? Well, at this point, the technology to do any sort of electric replacement in aviation is pretty minimal. But as far as emissions reductions, there have been a number of initiatives that have been undertaken, and I'll go over a few of them. As you know, as we all know, the aviation industry is dependent on jet fuel, which is essentially kerosene. And although progress has been made on electric and hydrogen options for aviation, really, we have an engineering limitation situation. We'll have that going forward, much more so than we have for any ground-based transit. And so therefore, a more environmentally friendly fuel 
called SAF is beginning to see utilization. And SAF stands for Sustainable Aviation Fuel, and it can come from natural sources other than petroleum, including used cooking oils. And so many things that could be used for it include also forestry waste, food packaging, and various biomass. So we have a number of airlines that have already already pledged to adopt SAF. Uh, British Airways, for example, has committed to powering 10% of its flights with SAF by 2030. United Airlines has agreed to buy up to 2.5 million gallons of the fuel, primarily to use in its European flights annually. And interestingly, the company's chief sustainability officer, Lauren Riley, was recently quoted as saying the demand from customers to limit their flying emissions is growing exponentially. So the aviation industry will have to do what they can uh, to move forward to green energy initiatives also. And then shipping is something most of us probably don't pay a whole lot of attention to. Maybe those of us that would go on a cruise or ocean voyage think of it from time to time. But shipping via ocean transport in this area, that is not really thought of as a carbon emitter because we really don't think of it too often. But studies have shown that it contributes over 3% of the world's carbon emissions. And for comparison purposes, this is equivalent to the emissions of a country the size of Germany. And also, most people don't realize it, but ships carry 90% of the world's commerce. And as commerce increases, it is expected that carbon emissions generated by shipping would increase in tandem. So the International Maritime Organization, a specialized UN agency, has a global mandate to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from ships, and the agency has established a mandate to reduce emissions by 50% by 2050, a time frame that has received a lot of pushback from environmental organizations who think it could be accomplished sooner. So you may ask, what have shipping companies done to try to move toward these goals? Well, it's a variety of things that they have come up with. Uh, Royal Caribbean, the big cruise line, recently has announced its intention to send a science-based target to achieve zero emissions by 2050. Carnival plans to reduce emissions by 40%. And what both these lines are doing is primarily switching to liquefied natural gas as a fuel for their ships. And then on the freight side, Mayers, which is the world's largest container line, plans to achieve net zero emissions across the business by 2040 through various measures, including uh, methanol and LNG. And in America, the Matson Navigation Company, the largest U.S. flag line, has an ambitious new decarbonization-inspired build program that will replace some of their older ships with five new container ships running on liquefied natural gas, costing the company over a billion dollars. All right, uh, Mark, listen, great info as always. We're uh, pretty much uh, right on the edge of our time limit here. Anything else that you wanted to add quickly just to wrap us up? Well, I'd just like to say that the green landscape is rapidly evolving, which makes it absolutely essential for lenders and investors to possess a solid understanding of the current regulatory environment and the competitive landscape facing a variety of their portfolio borrowers. So we'd really encourage lenders to reach out to our team right now for some added perspective if they think it could be of benefit. All right. Well, uh, I'm sure we're going to have some people who do want to reach out to you. So thanks for all your comments, Mark. If uh, if people do want to get in touch, how should they reach you? They can reach me by email, which is moneil at Hilco Global. That's M-O-N-E-I-L-L at Hilco Global. Or in my mobile number, which is 412-613-6739.
Okay, sounds good. I'm just going to emphasize it's obviously hilcoglobal.com. And uh, Mark, thanks again for joining us. Really great to have you on. Thank you for inviting me back on, Steve. Yeah, you bet. Hope to have you on again soon. Perfect. Guys, we got a roll here. Uh, As always, we hope the Smarter Perspective podcast provided you with at least one key takeaway that you could put to good use in your business or share with a colleague or client to help make them that much more successful moving forward. And remember, you can always check out more great podcasts and articles featuring timely insights from Hilco experts like Mark at hilcoglobal.com forward slash smarter dash perspective. So until next time for Hilco Global, I'm Steve Katz.